We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cass. Good morning. The opening chapter of The Precious Jewels is Bedlam. There is blood, bright red, gushing from a head wound, spattered on the family room windows. There are children crying. There is a very pregnant mom scanning the room to see which of her four children needs her most urgently. One of the brothers is definitely going to need stitches. These are the precious jewels. In this tale, jewels does not mean diamonds and rubies. It's the family name, J-U-L-E-S. They live in Roland Park, an Irish Catholic brood with secrets and messy complications like most families, and with a mystery that goes far beyond what most families carry. Today is an encore presentation of our conversation with author Sean Nochet from December. She's written a story rooted in Maryland and some of its particular history, but also universal in asking, what makes a family, family? Noche teaches in the master's writing program at Johns Hopkins University. The Precious Jewels is her second novel. She opens it with a chaotic scene in the Jewels family home in Roland Park. Many of the secrets that will unfold later revolve around one of the twin girls, Ella, a child with special needs. I asked Noche to tell us about Ella. So Ella is, a, as you said, a child of special needs and also a twin in a very large Catholic family. Um, when the book opens, there are four children with a fifth on the way, and then there will be a sixth um, at some point. Um, and uh, Ella was was uh, born with uh, and deprived of oxygen at birth, and it created a birth in- injury that is responsible for her challenges. Um, and again, this th- she's she's born in the early seventies, and so um, or sixty nine actually, and uh, so we we knew less then than we do now now about what those needs might be for a child like Ella. Well, what was going on in that family room that day in nineteen seventy four? So um, Ella is only four at the time, and uh, she has a tendency to put things in her mouth. So there is a family rule, and all the children know it, that there everything that is handed to Ella must be larger than the child's hand. That's the, the measurement they use to keep her safe. So the mother is going upstairs to dress after a particularly hectic morning at the breakfast table with the children, and uh, leaves Ella, who does not is not terribly mobile, um, in the center of the playroom and sets the children up to play. And she goes up to dress. And there is an accident in which Ella gets a hold of a toy that is too small for her. Um, and the youngest brother, only three at the time, um, panics, knows the rules, panics, tries to get it away from her, and um, a, a fight ensues. And Ella is pretty nonverbal. Um, and so he gets hurt badly. He, she bites him. Um, she she gets a hold of him and bites him on his face. And the children are traumatized by this. And by the time the mother gets back downstairs um, and and sees what is happening, it's just uh, it's it's horrifying. It's probably more horrifying to look at than it really is. But it is a trauma that the children will carry with them forever. Yeah, and other traumas, uh, not necessarily physical. Um, that mm-hmm. that w- will this will be sort of part of the story. What should we know for starters about Hillary, the mother of these four kids, soon to be joined by 
two more babies. Well, you know, it's funny you should ask that because I, I feel a little bit defensive of Hillary because um, Hillary loves her children and she loves her family and she struggles always to do the right thing. Um, but she's also a woman of her era and a woman of some means as well. And so doing the right thing often means that um, that she abdicates that responsibility as she comes to understand it to her church or to her husband or to her family. And in a sense, the decisions are really made by them. Um, by she, she puts everyone else's needs before her own. Um, but she's forced eventually to make a really difficult decision. Well, it's not even a decision, really. She's backed into a situation where she's going to relinquish her, her child to an institution. And um, she will struggle with that um, in raising what otherwise looks to the world like the perfect family. Well, yeah. Um, when Ella is about seven, the decision mm -hmm. is made to send her to an institution. In your book, it is called the Beechwood Institute. Many people yes. in Maryland will recognize it as the Rose Rosewood Center in Owings Mills. Yes which the state ran for 120 years as an asylum for the mentally disabled. Tell me how this institution comes to be in your novel. What what drew you to it? Well, I will tell you, when I, when I was a young child, I was a notorious eavesdropper on adult conversations. And my parents, very best friends, who were also my godparents, um, I believed that they had three children. And they were at our house for dinner one evening, and I was eavesdropping around the corner and discovered that there was actually a fourth child. And I had known them for years, but did not know about this fourth child. And they had placed a child at Rosewood. Um, and it was very, very confusing to me. I was about seven at the time when I learned of this. Um, the child was a few years older than me. Um, and it was something that I off and on through the years talked to my mother about quite a, quite a bit. They were best friends, my godmother and my mother. My mother often went with um, my godmother to visit her once a week at Rosewood. And so I sort of heard about this child growing up through my growing up. Um, and I was disturbed by it, not, not in a judging way. This family was probably one of the smartest um, most loving, uh, kindest families I had ever known. And I knew they didn't make rash decisions, but I couldn't help but be struck by, even though I wasn't a member of their family, I just couldn't help but be struck by what does that mean when you let a child go? And what does that mean to the siblings? And how does that affect them? And in truth, it did affect them. They're, the children grew up to be incredible overachievers and multiple postgraduate degrees and wonderful, brilliant people. But um, what had happened to their sister w sat underneath it all, not necessarily a secret, but as something that we just didn't talk about. Um, and when I got a little older, I started going with my mother to Rosewood occasionally to visit. And so I saw what went on there. Um, and, and I saw that there were good people working there and there were difficult people working there and that the situation was, was far from adequate and didn't meet people's needs. Um, but mostly I just thought about that decision that was made so long ago and writing The Precious Jewels um, 
it was something that was always in me. I just needed to explore that from the perspective of all of the family members and even um, close family friends. And while this story was inspired by um, family friends and their situation, this is completely fictional. And my only hope is that it honors the experience that this family went through. This is On the Record on WIPR. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with writer Sean Nochet about her latest novel, The Precious Jewels. So a few pages after encountering the Jewels clan in the 1970s, we are in the 20th century and we meet the woman who has been taking care of Ella for decades at Beechwood Institute. Tell us about Lynetta. So Lynetta is a, um, a a true Baltimorean. Um, she has she does not have um, she grows up in the Owings Mills area. Um, she her family's been there forever. Um, she has an education, but not no. She barely got out of high school, so um, she got pregnant in high school and finished with by getting her GED. She lives with her father. Her mother has passed away. Her life has not been easy. Um, but it's been it's been normal and average, and um, she gets this job at Beechwood at the same time that Ella comes into Beechwood as a child, um, and um, falls for this child, becomes very protective, and um, all of her maternal instincts kick in, and she becomes dedicated to Ella through the rest of her life, um, and gives up a lot to to do that. Um, the relationship asks quite a bit of her. And she does it willingly. So you tell us early that Beechwood is closing, just as Rosewood did in in real right. life in in two thousand nine. And of course, that raises the question: What will happen to Ella? You write that it rankles Lynetta, quote, to the bone, close quote, <laughs> that Hillary and her husband Stone Jewels are asking the state for custody mm-hmm. of Ella. Why does Lynetta think Ella should be with her? Because, well, uh, Lynetta knows some secrets that maybe or maybe she shouldn't have told the Jules family, but she, her hands were tied and she did not tell the Jules family. Um, she's begot, she's beginning to figure some things out and has decided that, that uh, home is not the best place for Ella. Her, her biological parents are not the best guardians for her. Not that she doubts for a second that those parents parents love her, but she doesn't believe that they're capable of being there for Ella, that they know who Ella really is, that they gave um, Ella the opportunity to be all that she could be, whereas Lynetta has committed her life to um, uh, helping Ella be everything Ella can be, not babying Ella, not uh, not taking care of her any more than she needs to be taken care of, um, uh, just supporting her. So she never doubts that the Jules family cares for Ella. She just does not think that that's a place for, where Ella will thrive. And by the time this decision is being made, Ella is 39 years old. So she's spent more than 32 years in Beechwood and has not been in her family's home. Doesn't even remember, for the most part, most of her siblings, very not very well anyway, kind of thinks of them in the same way that... Um, that she thought of them when she was seven and left the home. And on that precipitous note, we need to take a pause in our conversation with Sean Noche about her second novel, The Precious Jewels. When we're back, those siblings. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us.
Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. In the novel The Precious Jewels, five grown siblings in a vivacious Irish Catholic family are gathering from around the country at their parents' stately home in Roland Park for a dinner with a sister most of them have not seen for three decades. Ella's developmental difficulties were deemed too much for the family to deal with, so she grew up in a state hospital. Now that the state facility is closing, her parents want Ella back with them. Today we're revisiting our conversation with author Sean Noche from December. I raced through this book, and I was so absorbed, I don't think I noticed how Noche spun from scenes in the 1970s, when the kids were young, to the spring of 2009, when this big family huddle is unfolding, and times in between. I asked if she had always known that she wouldn't tell this story chronologically. I did. I did. I, 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 what I knew specifically was that each character had their own story to tell and saw it from their own point of view and that that would require going back in time and looking at particular incidences and seeing what one character missed and another one caught or what one character misinterpreted um, and um, and what someone knows and and the culture of being in a family that is keeping a secret and how um, that makes them hold their own individual secrets even tighter. So I knew I would have to go back and forth in time. I'd like listeners to hear how Belle, Ella's twin, now a mother herself, is thinking about the situation just after Belle talks to her oldest brother, Jax. Would you read to us from page 25? Sure, sure. So yes, this is this is Belle, and um, and she has just talked to Jax, and uh, she will soon be seeing her sister. She's on her way to Baltimore. When they hang up, she is uncomfortably snagged on the guilt she has worked so hard to shed over the years. She can't explain it, even to herself, but she knows it is rooted in something deep and primal, love and fear and self-preservation. A strange sense of relief that still nibbles at her core and nips even more ferociously whenever good fortune befalls her. And always, there is the sense that she has escaped something by virtue of a tragically consequential coin toss. She pulls back out to the freeway, rolls down her window to whip the thoughts out of her head. Tomorrow will be the first time Ella will join the family in 32 years. Belle shakes her head, can't imagine what that will look like what Ella will look like at 39 years old, what their family will look like with Ella back in the center of it. She imagines it as a kind of distortion, her strange sister pulsing in the center of them all, pushing all of them to the edges of an old familiar space that Belle, for one, does not want to return to. Did these siblings each tell you their thoughts uh, about what you call Ella's banishment? Or did you assign attitudes to each of them? Oh, that, that's interesting. I'm glad you asked that question. I, I love character. I love character in, in, in all novels, and I love to work within the character. So for me, I thought long and hard, and um, before I even put a pen to paper, about who these different siblings were and and their birth order specifically and then the extra entanglement of being a twin to someone like Ella. Um, and I had fleshed out who they were and then I threw the plot points at them and they behaved completely on their own. They, I didn't <laughs> always know how they would react. I kind of watched it from a distance, but I knew who they were. I knew who these characters were and I knew that I wanted to examine the different angles 
um, of, of each of the siblings. So even when, when I created Tess, who was the youngest, Tess was born a year after Ella uh, left the home. So she has never even met Ella. So you would think that the damage to, or the tra- that the, the trauma would be minimal, or the damage minimal, um, or the influence of such, you know, an, a situation minimal on Tess. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's not that even in just learning that she has a sister that has never lived there, there would be some trauma and there would be questions and there would be an insecurity and a need to align yourselves with the parent and questions about, you know, what sorts of transgressions merit banishment. (laughs) You know, there's there's a lot that goes on. Um, So that that so with the characters, that's what I did. I thought first about birth order and the relationships and um always keeping in mind that this is a loving family um and then they just they did the work themselves on the page <laughs> they told the story we hear at different points from both bell and ella about the way they feel connected and disconnected as as twins how did you know to write about twins I am fascinated with twins, and they tend to show up in a lot of my um, stories and and novels. Even even my first novel, I had you know a set of twins because um, I I love the synchronicity between twins. But then you have to wonder if one twin is um, is challenged in the way Ella is, and the other one, um, Belle, is her identical twin and is uh, stunningly beautiful and, and accomplished. Um, what kind of fears crop up? Uh, when you when wouldn't that synchronicity sort of be um, rather frightening on some level? Um, the kinds of things that a child would think about uh, when it, when they would have a twin, um, who got what? Why did that happen to her? Why didn't that happen to me? Um, I, I an inconsequent or a consequential twin, coin toss is how I had put it, and um, I think that would be especially terrifying. There would be this natural sort of connection. Um, sort of a spiritual, sort of um, beautiful connection between twins, and yet at the same time, I think it would be terrifying. Um, and and constant, I would imagine that Belle would constantly be um, grateful that she escaped this, and may want to reject the twinness altogether. That's Sean Noche. On the record on WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about her latest novel, her second, titled The Precious Jewels. It's a family narrative that's also a mystery, several mysteries. You are public about being a late bloomer as a novelist. You already had yes. raised a family. Two children, yes. two children right? Mm-hmm. Uh, two children, yes. Before earning your Master of Arts in Writing from Johns Hopkins, a program where you now teach, You published Mm -hmm. your first novel, A Hand to Hold in Deep Water, in 2021. Now you have created an amazing mother in Hillary Jewell. She she surprises me repeatedly. As a mother, was it a challenge to create Hillary? Uh, No, it was. It was not. I. Mothers also family dynamics fascinate me, and. especially the mother-daughter relationship fascinates me. I mean, all of us who have a mother or have a daughter understand how nuanced and um, wonderful and difficult and uh, that relationship is and how tangled mothers and daughters are 
even when they don't want to be, and yet how reliant we are upon one another. And I think it's just a fascinating relationship to explore. And um, and motherhood is that thing where, you know, your children come into the world and it is so easy to love them. And it is sometimes so hard to um, do the right thing by them. And um, it's a daily challenge. And I am fascinated by that. And I, and I want to acknowledge that in my stories about just how difficult motherhood can be um, and how difficult it is that that goal we have because we love our children so much, that that goal to be the perfect mother. And so I like to explore that. I like to explore the way we women try very hard to do that and always feel as if we fall short. Um, it's sad, but it's it's a reality. And I think it's fascinating. The press materials for The Precious Jewels say it, quote, examines the thin line between selfishness and what passes for love, close quote. Mm -hmm. To me, that's pretty hard on the Jules family. Is that how you it, see it? Well, it is how I see it, but it doesn't mean, it, 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 I see it that as being Hillary's reality, not necessarily the truth. I think that when you make a decision, that whether you're backed into it or not, um, you 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 hope that you're making it for all the right reasons. And Hillary makes a couple of decisions in this this book that she tells herself she does for love, but she asks herself afterwards if she did them out of selfishness, and it terrifies her. Um, and I think that's important to look at that, that there's it is not a black and white line. It is not a solid line between the two. Sometimes what what uh, making a making a choice out of love is still a choice that in the back of our mind um, might also be seen as selfish. And we're afraid of that as parents, mothers or fathers. We're afraid of being seen as selfish. We don't because we want to believe we do things out of love. So I think the world will see Hillary's decisions as possibly selfish or possibly made out of love. And I and I've had readers tell me this too. They 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 don't know where they sit with Hillary at first or they often tell me readers will tell me at first I I didn't really care for Hillary, but then um because they start to to see all of the the, the nuances. Um so I think it's it's the world judges and so we judge ourselves. And so um Hillary's choices may in some in some places have been questionable. I like to think that she made all of her choices out of love, but I know that Hillary will always question those choices and, and wonder if some of them were selfish. And, and by the end of the book, that really is where she is. She really is in a place where she's trying to make decisions that um, are her own, are truly her own, and, and not mandated by her church or her family or her other children. You quite literally give Ella the last word in this book. In fact, mm -hmm. you give Ella, as a person with disabilities, a lot of agency throughout the story. Mm -hmm. What factored into that decision? Well, in the beginning, she you don't hear from Ella very much. And um, the, you're, you're, you're learning about Ella through all the other people who know her and may not know her that well. Perhaps Lynetta knows her the best, but... Um, but, but they don't know her that well. They're making a lot of assumptions. And then as, as you get towards the end of the book, there is a chapter that is truly Ella's, and you are truly seeing the world 
from Ella's point of view. And I hope that 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 chapter is really enlightening. And I hope um, my goal with with waiting until then was I was hoping the reader would get to that point and read that and go, oh, so this is the truth. This is who she really, really is. Um, and then as as she is given her independence with support, um, she comes into her own. And I, th- I felt like that was a really important message. What do you hope readers take from The Precious Jewels? Oh, that's such a good question. Well, I, I do hope that one, one thing that they take with it is that when they close the last page, the characters stay with them and they continue to ruminate and the characters are in their lives a little bit and they're wondering what they're up to. Um, I, I love that feeling and, and I love that when that happens when I read another book. Um, that the characters are still with me long after, but I also hope that we take that the that that readers um, are forgiving. I hope that they see how we make choices in our lives that we um, may be backed into, and that um, we're doing the best we can. That's that's truly that we're doing the very best we can. It's a great book. Thanks for talking to us about it. Thank you. Thank you. Sean Noche's second novel is The Precious Jewels. We have some information about it at the On the Record page at wypr.org. I'm Sheila Cast. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow. Tomorrow.